Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Paul Nedeliski, who's been here a couple of times. He's a friend of both Dale and I and a friend of our podcast. Uh, And we always have fun conversations with Paul, and this one will be no exception. Uh, Paul and Dale and several other friends and I have, for the last couple of years, unbeknownst to all uh, everyone else, of course, uh, been really fascinated by this kind of typical boomer American male topic of Bigfoot and UFOs and and creepy uh, uh you, you know you know creepy paranormal cryptid stuff and the, not not because you know you believe the whole thing but it's because you're you're interested in the fact that there's an enormous amount of people that claim to have seen these kinds of things and uh Paul's one of these fun guys that I've met who you know he wears this one hat of being a, an ex- extraordinarily intelligent philosopher with a powerful mind and he wears this other hat of listening to more verbal testimony about these things than I've ever met uh, anybody in my life who listens to verbal testimony about these things. And one of the things we wanted to bring together, I suppose, as a discourse in this particular conversation is just the value of, of that that itself, the value of verbal testimony. And we'll, we'll, we'll organically get into that in, in a bit, because, of course, we have a faith that's based on, in, in many ways, verbal testimony. And so thinking hmm. through what does it mean to, to point out reliable versus unreliable verbal testimony about extraordinary claims. I think that just as Christians is just an interesting thing to think through. But before we, I suppose, get into those, those principled questions and that sort of thing, part of the reason, of course, this is the, the right time to talk about this is it's in the news all over. You know, you have the Congress is now having official hearings about these kinds of things. And, you know, a lot of Christians are probably like, I, I don't know what to make of these things. Uh, Paul has thought a lot about this. And I suppose, first, Paul, I just love, uh, uh, I, have, I, you know, a couple of, you know, biographical question or two, just to just to fill the picture out here for us a little bit. Uh, how does a, a person who, uh, uh, on the one hand, goes off and becomes a philosopher also get super, super interested in listening to many, 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 many hours of uh, uh, of testimonies about just kind of... Crazy. More than anyone knew until now, Joe. You've blown my cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. Sorry, brother. No, that's fine. No. That's fine. <laughs> how, yeah, how did I get into it? Um, I think the, the story, I think there are a lot of stories like this. It happened during COVID. Uh, you know, different different regions of America sort of shut down at different levels of intensity and for different durations. Charlottesville, where I live, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. Um, basically, no one left their house for a couple months when it when uh, you know, kind of from middle of March onward. And so, you know, we're we're all in here. I'm with my family, and uh there's a lot of good family togetherness. But I I uh, started doing a lot more cooking. And you know, first I started trying to listen to things related to my my academic interests. You know, there are a ton of great podcasts about philosophy, about history, about ideas, but I kept, they required too much concentration. And I kept, you know, I would take me three hours to finish cooking because I'm like trying to mentally keep track of what people are saying. And then I'm forgetting, you know, was it one cup or two cups or whatever. But one day I was like, you know, I am interested in all these alleged Bigfoot sightings. That's kind of how it started. I I ran across this podcast um, called Sasquatch Chronicles. And I thought, I'll just, I'm going to listen to an episode just it was just idle curiosity, and I happened to listen to one where the person telling the story—it was somebody who had spent the night in this mountain cabin and had this strange experience—they struck me as very credible. They didn't seem um, 
to be very polished. They didn't, it wasn't clear they had any incentive to make the story up. Uh, you know, these, these podcasts operate on a shoestring budget. They're not making a lot of money. Something you might realize, Joe, also, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's about goodwill. It's about, you know, um, you know, you have other interests. And so I was, I was surprised how credible I found this person. And at the same time, these stories hit that sweet spot where they were interesting, but I could keep cooking. And I wouldn't mess up the recipes. And so I kept listening to more and more. And it, it it kind of became this ritual. I'd get home from work, start in on dinner, put on a podcast. And um, certainly not all of them are credible. There are a lot of people out there who I think any any uh, sane person would realize this is this is a sensationalist. Um, this is someone who wants who wants attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are people where if you if you hear the story, I think most of us would be like, I'm surprised how credible I'm finding this given the content that this person is talking about, the content of the experience, given what they're saying that they saw. Um, and over, over the period of the next two or three years, I, I became more, more credulous of some of the things that, that I was hearing about. Um, just kind of a long story. Um, but that's how I got into it. Uh, I don't know if you want to share how you got into it. It's, you know, it's not, as you well, said, it's not a mainstream know, thing, but. No, I don't, I don't think I, uh, it was largely, I think through, discourse with folks like you and others where, uh, you know, it was always something that I, I figured, you know, there's probably just kind of a simple explanation for this. And most of it's, you know, um, you know, incredulous or something like that. And and tons of it is. Uh, but a lot of it was uh, a lot of it was meeting people who I take seriously. So it's like, you know, I've I've been I have enough of a kind of a bad version of conspiracy theory background that, you know, I've developed through my adult life, you know, some sense of like, yeah, that, that, that's not a particularly, you know, that's not a particularly uh, clear claim. You know, there's, you know, uh, you'd have to have a lot more evidence for this, that, or the other. And so same thing kind of with that hat on, with all those filters, with all those defense mechanisms on uh, there, there is something unique about just, listening to somebody tell a story of what happened to them. Uh, And especially, you know, I'm something of a storyteller. I can sensationalize. I can come up with a lot of details and that sort of thing. But listening to somebody that doesn't sound like a good storyteller, and in fact, listen to a lot of people that don't sound like good storytellers, uh, tell tell a story that... um, uh, they sound traumatized by. They have all the they have all the the marks of trauma. All those yeah. things. It's listening to those little textures in a verbal testimony that's so fascinating. And and so, for instance, one of the one of the the things I suppose that's worth kind of saying up front, of course, is that um, those in the you know even in kind of with a materialist secular framework, those who are just kind of psychologists uh, studying people like these and studying encounters like these. Very often, the, even the secular conclusion is minimally that at least these people believe uh, that what they are saying happened to them, and right. that's significant. Like even in, you know, even in the New Testament, we talked about this, right? You know, some liberals. One thing they have to concede, at least, is whether I believe in the resurrection or not. I do have to account for the fact that they believed in the resurrection. They seem to think that this this thing happened right uh, and that same tension you you see this with somebody like john mack the harvard psychologist you know he, he he's somewhat agnostic <laughs> about what any of this means but in terms of do these people think they saw this thing and did they seem to see something maybe um yeah he's just like psychologically you know he's a you know top child harvard psychologist right 
it's like it's very, very hard to find this not credible. Um, and that was one of the things that pushed me more toward taking this stuff seriously is I, I did. I read one of his books, uh, Passport to the Cosmos, where he kind of he he talks a lot about the specifics of um, alleged abduction encounters that people came to him because they're very traumatic. People who remember these things, so they yep. it's, it's no surprise that you know they, they maybe sometimes they're not sure if they had a bad dream or some of them think it really happened, but they go talk to a psychologist or a therapist. And Mac interviewed hundreds of these folks, and his conclusion, like you just said, well. I don't know what's happening to these people, but I can tell you that they're not lying. They think this stuff happened and there are weird um, convergences across the accounts. Like a lot of people are telling the same story over and over again. They don't know each other. There's no clear body of lore at this point. This was in the in the, in the 80s and 90s that they could draw right. on. Um, so yeah, that, that that's, yeah, that's an interesting aspect to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what... What in your, you know, if you were to, because again, we're talking, you know, that that boundary between sort of ironical interest and how seriously do we take these things, right? But I feel like you're you're somebody that can maybe taxonomize for us, like, when you see people that are interested in these kinds of things, obviously, it's not just that some of the stories are incredulous. A lot of the minds that are interested in this stuff kind of want to believe every encounter story and every every, every UFO story, every, you know, sort of, sort of I saw a strange creature story. Um, what kinds of, uh, I guess, um, more or less kinds of boxes do you feel like you could put people in? That's a weird way to put that. But in other words, ranges of interests and ranges of intelligent interests in these subjects. What, what do you see animating the, the folks studying these things it's a good question um i know less about the people who are into it than i do about the the kind of categories of types of alleged witness i could talk about that a little bit because uh, i think that that helped me um mm, go ahead yeah so i there there's a bunch of so background there's a bunch of podcasts out there and they're usually broken up into different kind of like segments of what we would consider the paranormal and the uniting theme is People who have experiences where the most obvious explanation um, doesn't fit in with the the kind of enlightenment empirical understanding of the world that that you would learn in school or that you would learn in grad school, um, and and some you know some will focus on Bigfoot, some will focus on UFO encounters, um, some focus on ghosts, this kind of stuff. But some of them kind of just do all the all the stuff. But uh, I I think there are kind of three types of people that will that will go on a show like that that i've encountered one is um the person who you know it, again and i i, I want to preface this by saying i don't expect anyone to take any of this seriously just because i'm saying it or you're saying it i really think yeah. this is one of those cases where you you should only uh find this stuff credible if you listen to some of the testimonies um and kind of do have the experience that 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 I and I think you too in some cases have had where you felt you're like it's hard for me to discount this person because they sound so believable because there is something it's very strongly tied to human judgment it's not tied to objective and empirical standards of like you know dispassionate assessment um sometimes you can just tell when you're talking to someone I don't think this person uh, is bsing me I think they're telling you. so uh that's kind of what I'm relying on um but three categories I would say one is someone who you hear them start talking and you you get the feel they want people to pay attention to them. And yeah. just in regular life, we all have met people like this. We've 
at times than that person. You know, we want to scandalize and sensationalize and have all eyes on us. And um, I have a, I have a member of my family who is this sort of person regularly, and she tells me outlandish stories that I can't take seriously because I know she just wants a captive audience. So you can usually tell, like, if that if, if the witness is this kind of person, just go ahead and you know move on to another episode. You're unless you find them personally entertaining. The second category is kind of like the geek who's excessively into paranormal stuff. Um, you know, these people often, they, they call themselves like, I'm a, I'm a ghost hunter. I'm a cryptid hunter. I, I, they have their own show, but they're coming on someone else's show. That doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't seen stuff, but they're going to talk about stuff that other people have told them, which could be interesting, but now you're at kind of two levels of remove from, from the, right. from the witness. Uh, and these people, in my experience, just in general, they're they're maybe too interested in it. Um, and I probably am too, but these people they've start they've started some kind of podcast or you know organization where they go explore haunted houses or try to take pictures of Bigfoot or whatever. And so they had to me, they seem to have kind of compromised motives. Like they they're like Fox Mulder from the X-Files. They really want to believe. And <laughs> that, that's kind of a, a big grain of salt for taking what they say seriously. But the the third category, which you were alluded to, there are people who um, you hear them talk and you can just tell uh, in some cases, A, they're not good at this. They're not being sensationalistic. They often sound very afraid to even kind of go back yep. and, and relive the experience to tell you about it. But they're doing it because they usually they don't know understand what happened. Um, they've often... Um, unpleasant experiences with their own therapists who of course you know for obvious and justifiable reasons don't believe them and are kind of like reductive or like undercutting you know way of explaining what happened to them um but they're they're insisting like no this really happened this is what i saw in in these pot form of these podcasts they usually, they usually find a sympathetic host who will take them seriously ask them questions yeah. let them tell their story yeah and and a big part of this for certain kinds of experiences, like like the Bigfoot stuff, um, the common Bigfoot experiencer of this sort is middle-aged male hunter, uh, rural, who usually is is pretty invested in his own masculinity, but has but is but has had this very um, unusual experience where he felt extremely diminished and, and overwhelmed, sort of in terms of the. I don't know what else to call it, but other than like the the the, um, the much greater masculinity of this entity that 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 he encountered, and he's like, you know, they're they're like, some of these guys cry; they can barely talk. Just recounting the story, they admit like they they've soiled themselves in these encounters, and so it's this strange like um, self abnegation in the account in the, in the the telling of the tale, which adds some credibility. You know, not that it couldn't be faked, but knowing these kinds of people. Um, they wouldn't admit to any of this stuff unless there was a really good countervailing reason. Uh, and so that, that to me, that makes them more, more believable. Yeah. There's a, then there's a lot of that, that to me is what's really interesting about listening to these kinds of testimonies is there's a lot of little textures like that, that um, uh, again, you don't get the sense that there's, there's much sensational, much sensationalizing. And if anything, in a lot of cases, it's like people are trying to underplay it. Sometimes you get the sense there's almost like qualifications in the direction of, well, maybe that was just me. There's, there's a lot of like, I, I'm not, I don't want to say anything inaccurate. And there's often, um, 
you're, you're describing the, the the kind of psychological profile just right in a lot of these encounters and 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 and, and uh, consonant with that profile you get a lot of people that you don't get the sense that they're people of many words and so that's another element there is, is like a lot of these people do not seem like major storytellers. They don't seem like the guy that's going to be at Thanksgiving tell it, talking. Uh, they seem like quiet guys that like to be in the in the quiet hunting or, mm -hmm. or something like that. And so mm -hmm. when they have this story, it's hard for them even to get words out. But then they're they're constantly like. Uh, remembering a detail and that sort of thing, and it's it just it it, it has a yeah there it has an air of genuine credibility, and and it could be that in some cases people are credibly you know hallucinating things. You know, there's some that I've heard where I thought you know people do have schizophrenia and that sort of thing, and maybe maybe there's one or two that a handful that I've heard where it's like I wonder if this is you know somebody experiencing genuinely a a kind of apparition that's just theirs. What what goes against that, of course, is that there's deep, just as you were saying, when, when John Mack, this Harvard psychologist, starts to study these kinds of like abductee encounters, the thing that kind of creeps him out about it is that, and again, as you said, before there's a lore, before there's a taxonomy of how these encounters go, um, there's just non-trivial parallels across a lot of these testimonies and it's somebody take somebody i think like jacques valet is the guy who comes along and sort of really makes the taxonomy for everybody but similar in some of these stories where you're talking about meeting a strange creature in the woods right um yeah maybe some of them are off but then there's a million testimonies that all sound the same even on points that aren't that common in the lore uh, it, it really is only by listening to these verbal testimonies that you you begin to kind of hear da data that's like that. Yeah, it's just that's just uh, yeah, straight up strange. Yeah, I mean that's the commonality between the cases. It's this kind of um, like this distributed coherence. Like they, these people aren't. It'd be, it'd be hard to imagine that they're somehow secretly in cahoots, like getting on the same page. Uh, once a, a lore develops, like we're at that point now, these podcasts kind of started about six or seven years ago. At this point, if you listen to a lot of these, you could call in and you could you could call the standard script because it's developed. But early on, um, across different shows, it was harder to to think that that could happen. Um, but yeah, the the insanity thing. I think part of it is. The, yeah, like the insanity is weirdly predictable. It all, always always follows a certain script or certain kind of themes. Um, and it happens, you know, with different kinds of phenomena, there are there are uh, more and less likely places where it, will where it will happen. And so it seems to be kind of geographically tied. Like almost no one sees Bigfoot in an urban area. They They seem to be, you know, a pastoral entity. Um, and uh, there are certain regions of the U.S. where there's more activity of, of certain kinds. And that doesn't rule out mental health issues, but it makes it seem more like it's a, a mind-independent phenomenon to me. Um, plus, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's such an odd, it would be such an oddly specific thing. It is true. With a lot of these people, we don't have, you know, their medical records in front of us and, you know, doctors that can attest like, yes, they've never been hospitalized for mental health issues. We don't have that. Um, but uh, I think part of this is our ability to, at least in some cases, uh, 
positively identify someone who's trustworthy just from the way they sound when they're talking to you. They, yeah, they they seldom sound. They seldom have tells or reveal things that would suggest that this is coming from a mental health um, kind of etiology instead of from from this eyewitness yeah. account. And the yeah the and and again kind of making the parallel not that not that <laughs> it's a strict parallel but making the parallel to uh, you know witnesses to the resurrection part of what gives credibility to the to the resurrection accounts of course is that there's multiple witnesses uh, saying roughly the same thing and there's slight little differences between the accounts of the resurrection I don't mean contradictions but there's differences of accent but as uh, many scholars have pointed out it's actually those differences of accent with a kind of common actual story that lend credibility to the eyewitness quality of the accounts. Oh, yeah, that's, that's literally. And so one of the things that really persuaded somebody like John Mack, I think, if I recall, the the original case that got him interested was this just highly weird uh, uh phenomenon that happened. I think it was in Zimbabwe, if I'm remembering the country correctly. And. 50 kids at this Christian missionary school, uh, 50 kids at a Christian missionary school were all at recess. Uh, and they claimed to see this, this kind of craft looking thing hit the ground and uh, some kind of weird entity around mm -hmm. one or two around the small the grays came out. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and they all draw pictures of it and they draw the same picture and they all tell the story the same, but they tell it with like little kid contradictions. And that's actually John Mack came in and said, look, if they were in cahoots, the thing is, is what happens when people are in cahoots is they actually tell exactly the same story. They memorize a script. Yeah, they memorize the details when they're just saying, uh, hey, uh, we just saw this thing and they all draw roughly the same thing. And there's little differences in all the accounts. It's like, oh, that's that's and what's interesting in that particular case. I think that was maybe 30 years ago, uh, late 80s or early 90s, if I recall. Uh, all of those children are grown now and all of them, all of them still, there's not a single one of those kids 30, 40 years later who doesn't claim this happened. And most of their lives have been really affected by it. One in particular, the family couldn't handle it and they just immediately moved. Uh, and, and they were, she was never able to talk about it because they, they, they were Christians and Christian missionaries, I think, and they couldn't absorb the, they just couldn't philosophically absorb it basically like where do aliens fit into cosmo yeah. Christian cosmology yeah exactly and um uh and but so the, the account you're telling that maybe you saw this documentary the phenomenon that's where i learned about this um it's a it's that's a great um kind of piece of media for people who might be interested i think it's the most credible kind of video um presentation of the ufo stuff and and the the makers of that film they go and they interview these these kids, you know, now 35 years later or whatever. And and they're all, like, like you said, Joe, like they're all they're all steadfast in their yeah, and their claim that you know that yes, this is what we saw, this did happen. Um, and it, it's a it's a pretty credible presentation. Yeah, that and I think the same director made another one just recently that was just about a case. It's a it's it's only about one single case that happened in 1997 in Brazil, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, it, and again, it's just one of these cases where there's so many witnesses and they all say like, and, and they're from different parts of a city, all experiencing some weird thing one night. Uh, and it's just, there's a lot of cases like, and, and I guess that that brings up really the maybe a central question that we want to get at, which is, you know, in, in our day, I think 
sometimes people just poo-poo verbal testimony, right? It's kind of like, that's the re least reliable thing there is. And there's, and maybe especially in our kind of post-industrial technological area, era, uh, we've, we've become, uh, there, the, you get the sense that for a lot of people, it's like, well, we have voice recordings, we have videos now, we have DNA evidence, and those are the real reliable things. Those are the, th you know, the human testimony. Humans are just, you know, not very reliable and people think they saw something and they didn't. But these are the real things. Um, and yet now we're, it, what's fascinating, and, and Paul and I have been talking about this a little bit recently, uh, is that maybe you're seeing, maybe you're seeing a movement where those those technologies, which we formerly relied upon, you, you hear of cases where the DNA evidence was actually, you know, read one way and then read another. <laughs> and it's not evidence that we individually know that well. Uh, nevertheless, it seems like um, human reliance upon some of those technologies is in the process of changing a bit uh, in an era where you've seen some DNA cases reversed uh, and you have deep fake video technology now. And so I'd just love to hear your thoughts about, uh, yeah, what, what does the relationship between, I, I don't know, kind of, kind of these technological sources of a supposedly neutral objective information and uh, the fact that human beings ultimately it seems perhaps have to trust a person and the reliability of a person somehow has yeah. to play a large role in justice. And uh, yeah, in fact, no, it's a great question, Joe. In fact, this is, this is getting onto a, a series of thoughts that is really probably the only reason why I'm willing to talk about this stuff in public, because I think I, you know, I, it, for me, it's mostly just a kind of a personal pastime. I don't expect anybody else to take it seriously. Sometimes I've stumbled across someone who's listened to a lot of the testimonies and we have a, you know, an interesting conversation, but things might be changing in the way that you suggest, because, um, you know, as you said, for the last hundred or so years, we've been in this weird, this weird region of human history where we had this technology that could capture aspects of reality. We could video, we could take pictures, we could video record, we can audio record. So we could capture things that really happened, but we didn't have the technology to fake it. And I would I would love people who study technology. I would love to hear from them. Are there, have, there, have there been other cases like this where, for this like you know special time, this window, we we had this objective um, way of proving or demonstrating whether you know something something existed or something happened. Um, and obviously, you know, it's confined. It's constrained to cases where you you have a camera present and it's up and running. But if you do and you capture it, people have to believe you more or less, but that's gone. Uh, you know, the, the deep fake stuff is here. It's even easier with, with AI and you can do videos, you can do photographs, you can do um, alleged audio recordings. And I think this is an area where as a society, we're going to have to, to grapple with this in ways that are really interesting. And um, I hate this word, but the, they're going to be very disruptive. Uh, I think because um, I'm just kind of free. I'm going to free associate for a bit. Then I'll but I'll bring it back to yep. the, the paranormal stuff. Um, right now, you know, we we rely on on media to know about things that happen where we're not non-local stuff, and that, and you know whether it's in another country, whether it's in the capital, whether it's in our state capital, whether it's in the next town over, for the most part, and issues of like media bias aside it's still pretty trustworthy. If you see a video, you can be pretty sure, oh, this happened. 
but that's going away because because of the deep fake technology and um you know obviously political interests partisan interests are strong enough uh, where you know there's ample motivation to abuse this technology it's already happening in some countries a couple of months ago venezuela found out venezuela had created a number of um ai generated news reports that looked as though they were coming from america and other countries reinforcing the venezuelan government's you know party line on on you know some initiative they had designed to sort of make make their citizens um fall in line with the program and so it's already happening in some places and, and i just think it it creates it's going to create what in philosophy we would call a defeater for for uh evidence we get from the media you know anytime you see a video anytime you read a story that's based on someone's account that that is not someone you personally know you're going to have the thought of the back of your mind yeah but did it really happen um am i being manipulated uh was this video really a capture like of, of something that happened in the world or was it is it a deep fake um and the upshot of that as you suggest i think is it's gonna it's gonna valorize human testimony again. Um, this is very long, Joe. So feel free to cut in at any time. I, but um, the narrative I kind of I kind of see is this is how it was up until we had these technologies that allowed us to rely on them to to get independent verification for for eyewitness testimonies. Before that, knowledge was sort was largely regional. You would go to a new place and say, well what are things like here? And people would tell you, and that's all you had to go on. And if you wanted to learn about, if you wanted to catalog, you know, the flora and fauna of the world, you had to go out and, and see what was there and you could write it down. Um, but, you know, post-enlightenment, uh, the growth of modern science, our, our threshold, our standard for what, what really counted as publicly acceptable knowledge uh, was tailored to, the, to these technologies, to things that we could control and capture in these ways. And so, um, that made it much less harder to believe in like weird paranormal stuff because you, it was harder. It was more elusive. You couldn't grasp it. It was harder to photograph. Um, but now I wonder, bringing all this to a conclusion, I, I wonder if because we're not going to be able to rely on the, uh, the sort of objective view from nowhere observer aspect of video recordings and photographs, this sort of evidence, um, either for the news or for sort of figuring out what exists in the world. I wonder if it's going to push us back to an increased reliance on human testimony. Do I, do I, can I trust this person as opposed to, well, they have a picture, so I don't care. Maybe they're terrible, but they have the photograph. So I have to believe it. And so that I think opens the door to saying, Hmm, there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are, who are saying they see these, this weird stuff that doesn't fit well with uh, our kind of modern ontology but maybe I have to take it seriously because what they're they're just as trustworthy as the other the other witnesses that I encounter to learn about the world. Yeah, don't dismiss their lived experience. That's uh, right. <laughs> that's the uh, and in fact, it's funny to say that because you get the sense that that really is almost the kind of cathartic uh, uh, headspace in which a lot of people go to these podcasts, as you mentioned earlier, is that it's like, it, it winds up being a really sympathetic space, as you say, where they don't get a lot of sympathy. Like you get that like, a lot of them talk to their friends and their friends are like, ah, and it does take people who are like, hey, I, I actually find those stories credible. I think what you said is just right. And, and this question of trust is fascinating to me. I was just, I just finished um, uh, teaching a class for Davenant Hall on philosophy of modernity. 
And one of the things we read was Anthony Giddens' little little interesting book, The Consequences of Modernity. And what Giddens tries to show there is that kind of in one sense, the whole story of modernity is a story of of disembedding from time and space and where your immediate life uh, and your immediate time is deeply shaped by spaces and times far away from you. Yeah. Everything in your room, everything, you know, all the clothes you're wearing, all of the things on your media screen, all of the, you, you and I right now are not in the same state. That's uh, right. Such a mediation of the uh, of the far away to the local in in just the basic textures of of our experiences, and what that what that tends to do to the society, and we can't fully get away from this. But what that has done over the last several hundred years is that human beings uh, who have historically uh, and irreducibly trusted persons, the way that we navigate the world is by trusting those whom we deem trustworthy, have increasingly had to uh, kind of trust systems uh, and, and, and experts. And this is a very commented on phenomenon. The modern world requires a lot of, I don't know anything about that, but I, I you know, I just, I just trust the system and the expert. Uh, a good example of that. Uh, it, that, that I'm using because Giddens develops it in a, in a very helpful way is something like airfare. Uh, actually, huh. you've probably seen that article that came out a couple of years ago. That was, uh, I can't remember what it was in. It was a major science journal, but they were like, you know what? Even scientists aren't entirely sure why airplanes work. We kind of got it up, lift, down, yada, yada. But like the guys who really know how turbulence works and all these things are kind of like, well, but why isn't, you know, <laughs> like, but we do know is that they work. Yeah, you know, is that they work super, super well. But and this is Giddens point. In one sense, we trust an expert. In one sense, we trust a system. But then he says, but imagine, imagine getting on an airplane with no pilot or stewardess at the front smiling at you. What if you literally felt like you were just getting on a machine and then it took off? Uh, No other difference. There's just no people at the front. And, and it, it, it arguably what systems have to do in the modern world to make us able to psychologically relate to them is add faces. So the, the, the pilot and the stewardess become this kind of totem of personhood on top of the system that then makes us comfortable to sit in the chair because it's not the plane in the system and the science that have me ultimately, it's the captain who has me ultimately. Uh, And so there's this psychology of human trust, it seems to me that actually human trust just does bottom out in a person. While we're in a context where we, we, we kind of irreducibly, as it were, trust systems, but we have to make that somehow, even if it's a little artificial, bottom out in a person. And one of the things that this whole subject brings up to me is just, um, are we too quick, you know, again, these days to just say like human, human testimony is not reliable. Uh, But, you know, are we too quick to forget that? Well, no, unreliable human testimony is not reliable. (laughs) Reliable human testimony is precisely the most reliable thing. And in fact, that's just how, that's just how human beings work. And I, and I think in, in a sense, but behind a lot of, uh, a lot of those who are into things like conspiracy theories and this sort of thing, uh, as much as I, I disagree with all sorts of, you know, kind of Alex Jonesy conspiracy theory sorts of sorts of things. Uh, I do think it's fascinating to recognize where most of the people that believe that come from, uh, uh, why they're skeptical in some ways of experts and systems. 
and like part of the moral system behind a lot of that is uh, I, tr- you know, I need to trust a person that seems trustworthy, hmm. not just somebody telling me to trust them because they know a lot. And I often hear think of, um, uh, uh, and then I'll, I'll toss it back to you, but I often hear think of the the character of Luna Lovegood in Harry Potter, uh, who's a conspiracy theory believer but she's fundamentally on the side of the angels because she's ultimately an incredibly trustworthy individual and she bonds to deeply trustworthy individuals. Like that's the moral system, even though it's kind of misfiring in all these weird ways, it's rooted in something in her that's actually quite um, virtuous. Whereas her father has a relationship to the conspiracy theory stuff in the in in the Harry Potter book that's less virtuous and, and isn't as related to you know that aspect of human trust. Uh, anyway, to I'm just throwing it back to you, but it strikes me that we need to develop a kind of a, a more re, a realistic epistemology, moral epistemology, perhaps of of, of trust, uh, like the reliability of human utterance and when when we can know that, how we know that. That raises it to me a very interesting point that I. I've never heard discussed or thought of. Um, and that is, if this deep fake technology combined with known, you know, currently known media biases leads to sort of the our inability to g- generally trust non-local media, um, which some people call this the 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 infocalypse, the info cop, right? Yeah, the in, info and apocalypse but together. Oh, the right. Um <laughs> Infocalypse. Infocalypse. Like it. <laughs> it sounds like a bad word, uh, but uh, if that, I, I think I don't know if it's going to be an apocalypse, but I think it's going to require a big change in ways that I'm still, I can't foresee how it's going to go. But um, one upshot could be, ought to be, that it's much more difficult to buy into conspiracy theories because uh, very rarely with conspiracy theories, at least the ones that I've heard of, and I'm, I'm not deeply. I'm not well versed in these, but the ones that I've heard of, like Pizzagate and this stuff, it's it's almost never someone, um, you, either oneself or or someone one personally knows who sees something. You know, nobody found like, you know, a, a dungeon where kids are being tortured in the back of a pizza shop, and then went and told a guy, and then that guy went and sh- you know showed right. up with an AK-47. It's always you, they read about something online. There's some you know internet cabal where they talk about stuff, but it's. It ought to be the case that this diminishment of credibility of non-local information applies to conspiracy theories too. Will it? Knowing humans, no. Uh, but but uh, it ought to. I feel like like if if you can't yeah. trust if you can't trust CNN and and the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, because for all these reasons that we've talked about, then you shouldn't trust a person on you know Reddit or or Fortune Fortune or whatever. Yes. Uh, and that is very often the, the mistake in the move is like, I can be sympathetic to like, I don't know if I can trust such and such and such and such and such and such. It's like, well, I'm not telling you, you must. Uh, but it's weird to trust Jim Bob's blog on the internet from like, you know, his, his uh, 2007 blog spot comments or something like that. Uh, nevertheless, what's going on there, arguably, I suppose, is like um, when, when, 
they're trusting a certain vibe that a person puts out. It's like what they're doing in those cases is trusting Jim Bob. He just seems like the kind of guy that thinks like I do or something like that. And that that's usually where the trust is forged, which can, which is not necessarily a good way to build trust. Thinking like you do is not the standard. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> trustworthy is the standard, but that, you know, it does take some openness of soul and, and virtue to, I think, even kind of be on the look to, to judge who that is in some sense. So we're, we've been talking about human trust, the relationship of these kinds of weird paranormal topics, to how, how it highlights this conundrum of human trust and maybe is reshaping, if it, as it were, the ecology of human trust. Um, uh, I guess it's worth mentioning as we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going there, we're talking about weird things right now. Uh, I suppose it's worth mentioning, um, you know, what is a, you know, non-crazy account of very, very generally speaking, obviously we could say a bunch of things, but very generally speaking of what all this stuff is. Because that's another thing I think you've spent a lot of time thinking about. And I, and I suppose part part of my, I, I should have in the, when you asked me, how did I get into this? Uh, I mentioned you, uh, I guess I didn't mention Mike Heiser. One of the reasons I suppose I also kind of started to really take this a little more seriously is that I was finding somebody like Mike Heiser who is just, uh, he's just a paragon of reasonableness. You know, he's the kind of guy who thinks, yeah, most of it's bunk. He's 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 really good at like refuting ancient aliens. He thinks all of that's mostly just complete BS. And he's very good at kind of like he's an actual ancient Near Eastern scholar. He gets rid of, you know, he really he he really debunks <laughs> an enormous amount of these things that are are just ridiculous. Nevertheless, he does take the kind of abductee literature fairly seriously and things like that very seriously. Huh. And of course, if you know Michael Heiser, of course, um, he is going to at least suggestively relate it to, you know, the possibility that there's kind of uh, not aliens, not people from other planets visiting us, but maybe a lot of these things are just part of the, you know, the under-discussed you know, kind of demonic and sinister angelic realm that, as you put it, in a secular uh, uh, kind of materialist imagination, we don't really have, except for very theoretically, much of an imagination for that that aspect of reality. And so, uh, yeah, I guess thoughts about where, as you've been thinking through these things, where do you kind of synoptically kind of place these phenomena? Yeah, and this is the question that may get me into trouble. Um, here's what I'll say. If you think about witness encounters as texts or as you know there's not one text but as texts so this is the, the text is what are people saying who um more or less i think credibly have claimed to have seen a lot of this weird stuff of many different kinds of alleged phenomena um looking at these texts is there a unifying explanation what what sort of picture emerges from all this stuff that people claim they're seeing. And this is, I don't know how interesting this will be for people who haven't listened to some of the accounts. So I'll just, I'll keep it real short. Um, but if you're interested, you can, you know, find me on the internet and ask me questions or just start listening to accounts. And you'll, I think what, what I say here will cohere. I think, uh, especially if you're coming from a Christian perspective, the best interpretation of these texts, kind of putting off for a second the question of whether they're true, um, the interpretation, I think, would be 
the paranormal for the most part is what earlier generations would have called the, the underworld. It's the realm of the dead. Um, and the stuff that people today mostly classify as paranormal, uh, with the exception of people who, who might see angels, um, it's stuff relating to the entities that are under a curse, uh, the curse of death, which God has instituted um, as a punishment for, for sin, um, whether, you know, human or angelic. And I think, the, again, I'm not supporting this as evidence, but this is what I see. Um, I think the baddies, uh, the devil and, and his angels and, and uh, the unclean spirits with them, and a lot of other stuff that that uh, is not usually talked about, um, they're working together and they're they're in rebellion against the punishment that's been placed on them. Um, I don't know if if the angels are dead. There are certain passages of scripture uh, that suggest this. Um, one of the Psalms, I'm forgetting what it is. It's uh, I think it's in the early 80s or maybe 70s, but um, God is talking and says, uh, you know, you were you were in the divine council, but you will die like men. And and the the most obvious interpretation is that he's talking to these high-ranking angels, and he's he's telling them that because of their their transgressions, they will die. Um, anyway, so I think the unifying theme is these are uh, spiritual beings and 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 uh, the ghosts, if you will, of of dead creatures who are in league with the fallen angels, and they are. Uh, trying to use technology to overcome their diminished state, the, the curse of the curse of death. Um, and this, I think, explains a lot of their interest in living humans. Um, and I think it, it you know, they this would tie in with why they do have technology. I think they do. I think a lot of the stuff that people think are are aliens are really, you know, these these underworld entities that um are able to use technology and they're trying to cope with the the state they've been they've been put yeah. into. There's a in fact interestingly in the recent hearing before US Congress where this kind of whistleblower uh comes you know very very deep from I, I can't remember if he was the with the FBI or the CIA. Uh 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 the guy who they interviewed in front of Congress. Uh, Rush? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh but he you know one of the things he kept correcting because the in our imagination when we think of these things if we take it credibly if we say people have seen a craft or something like that it is almost always immediate that people start talking about aliens. Yeah. And in that guy even though he didn't he didn't use any of this language we just used one thing he kept insisting on uh was I'm not saying they come from somewhere else besides here. Uh, and even Jacques Vallée, again, who was, a, you know, you know, I don't think he's, you know, we wouldn't consider him like he's not a conservative evangelical. Right. When he was studying <laughs> stuff in the 60s and 70s, uh, one of the things he concluded was, I'm not sure that whatever this is, isn't part of our reality, even if it's kind of like another maybe higher dimensional reality getting into ours or a lowered, however you understand whatever that is. Uh, but the idea being they're not coming from way over here and then traveling from another star system. Uh, uh, and, and one possibility of Valet actually entertains the possibility that entities like this kind of maybe sinister intelligences of sorts have always existed in the human race and taken different, you know, sort of forms. So, you know, you think of what, why were the ancient pagan temples such sites of 
persuasive religious impact. And a lot of that might have been that literally, you know, if you're a Christian who believes in fallen angels and demons, that there are things going on in the temples. Uh, and Valet is also going to talk about how uh, in the Middle Ages, you have a lot of, you know, a lot of things that have this kind of script uh, uh, related to kind of encounters with saints, you know, kind mm -hmm. of a a light, you know, a, a saint presenting himself, I'm here to help you, you know, that kind of thing. And he kind of looks at this and he's like, this taxonomy, this script is a new version of the script, but it's very similar to these other scripts. Uh, and it's in the vernacular of the people of the time. And sort of, I, I think what a lot of, a lot of people that study these things now and Heiser and others would be, be among these might say like, what, what is this? Well, this is the way, this is the way you would deceive a materialist civilization is to present yourself like how would a materialist civilization imagine a species that was there to help you? How would you deceive them? Well, you'd present yourself as a highly advanced material civilization uh, and, 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 you know, kind of create, you know, you know, slowly create some sort of quote, quote, bond of trust. You're making the point though, that's interesting, which is, because uh, in the kind of that the old Enochian account, right, the image is almost like the the devils or, or fallen angels or whatever you want to call them are giving technologies to humans to kind of enable them to transcend their limitations or something like that. But yeah. you make this point that maybe there's a maybe there's some uh, uh, use, as it were, for the technologies themselves for the you know for these whatever these are. Yeah. Yeah, and again. Um... For the listeners who are still with us, this is coming yeah. from um, trying to trying to synthesize all this these weird, superficially disparate pieces of data. It's like you know when you that and that was part of the initial attraction for me is I was listening to these accounts. I'm cooking dinner, and I'm finding some of these people credible, but the story that that it's emerging is just initially so perplexing. It's like how does this yeah. fit in to anything else that I believe? Kind of like you said earlier, you know. It, Aliens have classically been a challenge for Christians, um, you know, C.S. Lewis's efforts notwithstanding. Like, how does this, they're, they're not in the Bible, they're, where would they fit in? Um, so it's so those kinds of thoughts. Uh, but one thing that a lot of people talk about is that, you know, the, the, the entities that we call aliens, like the small grays, the tall grays, um, all, you know, the different, the different like standard types that people wind up seeing, they're, almost always very interested in human anatomy and and yeah. uh and and they they go about it in a clinical way you know it's not they're here merely to frighten and and to punish and rape or whatever you know or molest i mean th that does happen to people in these accounts it's terrible but it's but it's almost always the the entities don't seem very focused on at least the alien type entities don't seem focused on frightening people they seem focused on using us, getting something from us, taking blood samples, taking saliva samples, taking um, flesh samples, taking semen samples, uh, you know, it, all kinds of weird stuff. And uh, a lot of people who talk to them, and again, if it's hard to trust a human, it's, it ought to be even harder to trust, an, you know, an alien type being than some kind of experience. But what the, what the entities say is, um, our race is, a common thing they say is our race is dying we're not doing well, biologically speaking. And and the narrative that the alien entities give is we're very advanced. We're much older than you. Our rate, you know, we're kind of are genetically running our course. And so we're trying to overcome the kind of, I don't know how this works biologically speaking, but like, you know, we're trying to re-energize or revitalize 
um, our our species by supplementation from from human human biology. Uh, and that you know the the best sense I can make of that, if you're trying to create a coherent interpretation from these texts, is and make it cohere with a broadly traditional Christian perspective is, well, they're dead and they don't want to be dead because it sucks to be dead. I mean, that's the whole point of death. God created it to be a punishment. Um, and, and so, uh, they're, they're trying to overcome that. And like you pointed out in these Enochian accounts, you know, in the, um, kind of second temple, uh, uh, Judaism texts that, that are not a part of scripture, but have been around for a long time. Um, which all the biblical authors would have known and, and probably accepted, you know, there, there's a lot of talk of these early angelic guardians, the watchers, they knew a lot about technology. They knew how to manipulate matter and they, and they gave technology to people. And that was actually part of what pissed God off. Um, I don't think it was, I don't think it said that we were not supposed to have th these kinds of technology are supposed to, supposed to come by them. So, so easily. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, I, to me, that, that kind of fits together. Um, if I could, I want to throw in one more thing. Just, you know, again, we're not, I, I, it would be pointless to do a deep dive into to why I think this is a good interpretation. Cause again, you, I'm just a guy, a random guy on in an yeah. interview. People, people need to listen to the, the testimony if, if they're going to find it credible, which, you know, probably they shouldn't even invest that amount of time. But the, maybe the, the single biggest um, persuasive thing for me and thinking that this, these phenomena are in the realm of what we would call spiritual. Um, which then eventually suggested that they might be like underworld beings or the you know the realm of the dead, is that, and this is widely attested in these accounts, these things respond to the authority of Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's a, an extremely peculiar fact that- All any, the any, secular stu studies of this, they all say this. Yeah, just that's happens. right. And that blew my mind. So you so yeah. um, I, at this point, I've, I've heard hundreds of stories where people, you know, whether it was- Bigfoot, a werewolf-like entity, you know, alien type entities, ghosts, you name it, almost any orbs, floating, glowing orbs, any paranormal phenomena, um, people, if they if they call the name of the Lord, it goes away. Yeah. And like you said, even even secular, you know, aficionados admit this and they they come up with, you know, bespoke and kind of amusing explanations for why this works. My favorite is what this shows is that the aliens have accepted the Christian narrative. And so this scares them when you when you invoke invoke Jesus Christ. But this to me is uh it both suggests kind of the 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 supernatural evil component of the of the overall explanation, but it also, I think, for me personally as a Christian, it speaks to the credibility of these accounts because this is another hard thing. It would be a hard thing to fake because of how controversial a specific religion is in our pluralistic age. I mean, you wouldn't have um, non-Christian aficionados agreeing about this. At least seems to me there'd be big incentives for them not to agree um, unless it really was happening. And, and I've never heard anyone say, no, that doesn't really happen. They all say, yeah, whether you believe in them or not, if you call, if you, if you tell them to stop in the name of Jesus Christ, they, they do. <laughs> yep. Uh, even, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that is a really commonly reported. That's a really commonly reported phenomenon when you listen to these testimonies. It's a very strange. Yeah, that's a very strange one. Yeah, maybe the last thing uh, I'll bring up is 
you, we talk a lot about transhumanism these days. And one of the things that's interesting in the kind of the old, you know, the Genesis 6 narrative is it's inflected and interpreted through the Enochian tradition. And I think you see some of this picked up in the New Testament. Uh is that you You can almost see, you know, one reading of this, if, if we were to take kind of a sinister agent kind of interpretation, is that there's a parallel making man in the image of God, you know, that God makes man in his own image from the dust of the ground and this sort of thing. And maybe what you see in this kind of introduction of the Nephilim, and again, this is where Heiser's so useful. He doesn't try to figure out how the mechanics of it all work out. It's just somehow the angels get involved and these weird, these weird people get born, right? <laughs> you know, however you think that worked out, something like that happened. But in, 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 as that gets interpreted in the tradition, there, there's kind of this, there seems to be like this giving, and this is all in the human myths, this kind of giving of kind of great technologies, but maybe the crafting, and you wonder if this is part of what these weird births are, the crafting of a kind of, as it were, human that's made after the image of the angels. Uh, uh, if, if you take the interpretation that angels have always been jealous of man, because man is destined to be higher than the angels. One thing that you could see angels, sinister angelic creatures is always interested in, I suppose, is the crafting of the human after their own image. And so you get these hmm. extraordinarily violent, uh, these extraordinarily violent sorts of creatures. And you wonder if some of these phenomenon are, are, yeah, I don't know, the, the, the crafting of, uh, I, and this is that that's incredibly highly speculative. I'm just this is really me just putting on the, the 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 trying to pull the categories and then say, if I was just a guy who experienced something like this, what bucket would I put it in? Would it be something like that bucket? Is you mean it, like the, the the stuff they call cryptids? Yeah. Like in, other the, words, in other words, that that interest in genetics. And again, oh. like like is all of this is all of this completely wrong? And 100 percent of these guys just are completely, you know, maybe. Maybe that's true. But if, if and I like the way you put it, if this series of texts is true and people claim to have experienced or at least seen, it claimed to have experienced uh, these images even, just the icons themselves, the icons themselves are just completely fascinating. And the question, you know, and part of the question then becomes is, is this, uh, does this vaguely signal in some way that very, you know, an ancient thing that we've always known, which is that these sinister agents are involved, are, are, are interested in crafting the human race after their image and in a very destructive way. And uh, you put that together with kind of modern transhumanist movements. And I think Lewis is thinking this way and that hideous strength. There's a sense that, uh, uh, that there's a demonic program involved in the desire to transcend the body. And it's fascinating yeah. to me that that theme in these encounter stories, that theme of some fascination with the, the human body, transcending the body, and then all the phenomenon around it are biological. They seem to just reflect this interest in biology and, and uh, maybe are creatures whose biology, who, who are, who are apart from you know, some limiting power might be otherwise very violent. Uh, or something like that. That could be. Um, that's an interesting interpretation. That that the motive, the motive behind, you know, angels messing around with human beings, which is in the, you know, it's a a long-standing tradition. It's in Genesis six, kind of in passing. Um, but in you know, in the Enoch Book of Giants, Jubilees, these kinds of texts. That's, I guess, that's possible. I to me, 
what the text, the, the, what these like pseudepigraphical te texts uh, suggest is that the angels lusted. <laughs> they saw human women and were like, they are awesome. Um, let's, you know, and so, so that, that, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean like the texts are telling us all their motivations. It could have been more oriented toward procreation and less toward just, you know, um, lust without further thought for the implications. So it, you, that could be that could be a great explanation. I've never thought about that. I'll have to think about that more. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and obviously we're too again we're we're putting on our 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 old man boomer hats here, and I'm sitting on a porch and we're talking about Bigfoot and aliens and that sort of thing. Uh, and again, uh, uh, we're not talking about it as people who are ideologically committed to some paradigm about it. It's like again, who who knows? There's really a big who knows. Uh, rather, nevertheless, I think there is some attempt to say um, uh, it's it's worth it's worth putting it's worth some Christians it's worth some people putting in the effort to say like maybe there's something to that collection of phenomenon that's not completely crazy and I think it's worth getting voices and minds in on that kind of project uh, that aren't so disposed towards uh, credulousness yeah uh, and that can pull in philosophical and theological categories that maybe help uh, unite some of this. Because again, a lot of the people, and I, I think this is significant to reiterate, part of what lends credibility to a lot of the verbal testimonies is that none of them do what we're doing right now. Most of them do not sit around trying to figure, like when it comes to like, what was this? What box do I put it in? Those who've experienced it, when I listen to their testimonies, they are usually the last people to make any dogmatic claim about what they experienced. Uh, it, usually when they do, interestingly, this is the most common thing I hear. The most common thing I hear is uh, uh, some uh, interpretation that has something to do with demonic, sinister agent kind of thing. That's yeah. at least a very increasingly common interpretation of one's own experiences. Uh, but again, most of the people I've heard are very non-speculative about it. Uh, it's just mostly a trauma that they don't know what to do with. No, that's right. And just going back to, to, to your earlier point for a second, I, I think you're right that there, I think there is value in some people diving into this stuff. Um, hopefully I'm one of those people because it's too late. I've already done it. Uh, yeah. But part of it is, I think, because, and to me, this is in general, a kind of intellectual virtue. I think, I think not just Christians, but human beings need to be more willing to build speculative theories, like theories we were saying, like, I'm going to put these pieces together and I don't know if the theory is true yet. You know, kind of think of it as like, um, you know, you know, philosophers like, like to talk about how credence can fall between zero, meaning like you totally reject it and one, meaning you're totally certain. But there's a huge range of like options in between. You can build a theory and say, I don't accept this. Like my credence for this isn't certain. Maybe, it is, maybe I don't even find it probable, but I haven't fully explained the world to myself yet. And so I may learn new things. And as I learn new things, how credible I find these theories, that like those values may change. I'm really talking like an analytic philosopher now, but, but you know, yeah. I think the, hopefully the model makes sense. And so when I, when I listen to these accounts, I'm building theories, not that I accept, but, but to make sense of the data that I'm hearing. And as I learn new things, how credible or, or incredible that I find in that changes. For instance, David Grush and his, you know, the whistleblower and the stuff that he said to Congress, he said um, a lot of things that uh, 
Heiser has said in the past, or or it's that has been said in text that Heiser recommended. And so for me, that's a new piece of evidence that raises the credibility of theories that involve that kind of narrative to some degree, because here's this guy who's willing, frankly, to put his life on the line and really risk making himself look like an idiot uh, to, to say this stuff. So I think that that's one way in which this kind of stuff can be valuable. Probably we shouldn't all do it. Hopefully you and I should. Um, and secondly, there may be at times practical value. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this, but there's this new, this new kind of conversational theme in the in the world of people who call themselves energy workers. Uh, you know, they tend to be people who have been really into yoga. They're usually into astrology and the horoscope. They're into crystals, the healing power of crystals. You know, there are a lot of them in, in you know areas of Brooklyn, and there it's kind of like an alternative medicine, new thought. Um, like kind of like 21st century hippies, but part of it is like, guys, there's this, these energies that are, that are out there and we can like interact with them and you can like, your life can go better if you get your energies right. But there's this, there's this new movement of, of a number of energy workers who are converting to Christianity because they became convinced of, well, not only are there in fact energies according to these people, but, um, their agencies and some of the agencies are evil. And now the picture that I'm interacting with is is weirdly close to kind of an age old Christian cosmology. Um, and uh, a great person to look up is Caroline Dooner. Uh, she she got famous for writing a, a bestseller called The Fuck It Diet. You may have to edit that. But that's that's the title of the book. Um, but she got into energy work, and then she wound up converting to Christianity. And she goes into all this on her her I think it's a Substack. Um, her last name is D-O-O-N-E-R, Caroline Dooner. But it's their fascinating stories. Um, and I think if you if you've spent some time trying to get some kind of theory of of what the, what this stuff is, then when you when you come across what these energy were saying, for instance, there is an immediate practical application. Like, you know, when I when I hear what her and her energy worker friends talk about, I think, well, I have a pretty good guess about what's happening. Um and so, yeah, I, I, this is a long-winded way of saying I agree with you. There is some value in it. Is it the most important thing? No. Yeah, um, of course not. No. As long as I'm cooking dinners, I, I tell myself I can keep listening yeah. to these podcasts. This, this is this is exactly when I listen is uh, uh, exactly when uh, I'm cooking dinner. Though it's interesting. I, I won't say who it is because he'll probably hear this podcast. But uh, I was out with a, a, a local pastor recently, and we were talking about uh, a little group I'm going to put on in the South Carolina area called Darts, uh, dialogue about really tricky stuff. Oh. And the premise is, hey, civilization is falling apart. Let's talk about tricky things and not do that. Uh, and so you meet at a bar and Christian, bring your buddy, you know, it can be non-Christians, that sort of thing. And so I was talking to a local pastor uh, and was, you know, saying like, you know, what kinds of articles should I pick? And I was telling him, you know, this film, this is a cool documentary. This is an interesting article. I'm trying to pick kind of non-culture war signaling things, but that are just like um, Wilfred McClay's The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Yeah. yeah. You know, oh, man. Or, great, you know, that, great those, those kinds of things. Uh, uh, and when I asked him, like, you know, what do you think? What do you think is just something people would come together and talk about and like, you know, get into something Christian over? Uh, and he had a Sasquatch sticker on his phone ironically uh he had an ironic sasquatch sticker uh and then he just pointed at it and he said honestly in this area if you talked about that out loud an enormous amount of people would want to talk about it huh. so it's interesting in, in one sense it's like yes maybe there are only a handful of people that quote quote should get into it um i think it's becoming 
in the in the conversational hive mind uh, uh, in America, a bigger conversation. Some of this because of some of this because of Congress, and because there's just more and more credible people who don't have the typical script, right? Uh, who seem to be taking it somewhat seriously. I would definitely agree with Paul that you know the average Christian doesn't need to get obsessed with these things. A lot of people uh, like you, you know, I get I do a lot of this when I'm cooking food. Um, I find it interesting because I think it's becoming a bigger uh, uh, cultural conversation, um, but also for reasons that you're pointing out, I suppose I, I, I think about it. I've been very interested, not just by kind of cult formation since the 60s, uh, there, you know, watching how cults have formed since the 60s is a really, really fascinating phenomenon to me. But then to think about ways in which we're almost civilizationally a cult, the way in which we live inside of cult headspace but at just a very successful hive mind level and how, how it seems to me quite literally sinister agents can colonize that. I, I think if, if nothing else, bringing back the language of deceivers trying to manipulate the fact that you live in a materialist civilization and have a materialist imagination. I think having that as a functioning set of registers on which we're analyzing our own life and experiences. I think that's actually very, very useful. And so in one sense, it's like sometimes uh, for me, listening to these things is useful in the same way that reading that hideous strength is useful for me. It's not really that like there's a story exactly like that hideous strength out there. It's that nevertheless, this, this is a good set of moving parts that help me think through what would it look like in a sense or to imagine what might it look like if demonic agencies were trying to deceive people that were very much like us. And I think Lewis at least asks a question like that. I think these sorts of discussions, in addition to bringing up this question of the value of human testimony, also forces us to ask what, what frame, what, what, yeah, what, what kind of face might the demonic take in a context very much like ours. And it, and it, it is kind of these sorts of things you talk about, right? It's like a lot of that stuff probably starts out very ironic. It's sort of like, oh, you know, of course, none of this is that serious, but I'm really into crystals now. And then it's like, but you can meme yourself beyond irony uh, and then discover, oh, the world is weirder, much, much weirder than I thought. There was a, a, a hilarious testimony uh, that I heard recently on the, um, where this, this woman called in and she was like, so I don't know, but there's apparently this channel that Gwyneth Paltrow has where she like sells lifestyle products and like cosmetics. Um, and there was some like ritual that some person that Gwyneth Paltrow had on the channel did to like cleanse the space. And this woman who's called into this podcast, she was like, my friends and I watched her show ironically to make fun of it. And we decided to do the ritual just for kicks. So we did it. And and then she her most of her story related to how one of the other women who was in the story um started feeling that there was a presence in her house at night and wherever she would go, dogs would bark at her, like just rat, viciously bark at her. And the, the suggestion, the best interpretation this woman could come up with was we did the ritual as a joke, but it worked. And like we summoned something and and we've had a hard time getting it to go away. Thanks, Gwyneth Paltrow. But you know, <laughs> but just <laughs> on that on that tack of like people who get into it maybe ironically or yeah, they don't know what they're messing with. This is an age-old tale, like don't play with a Ouija board, kids. But people are telling stories like this, and maybe, maybe they're true. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, this is hopefully the first of probably several conversations about this because uh, uh, not necessarily that they're right in succession, but it's worth, um, yeah, it's worth it maybe at some point even getting down into, you know, what are the what are the more particular things that people claim they're seeing? What's kind of the range of phenomenon out there? What's obviously kind of bunk? You know, there's, there's obviously some of these things, even some things that are multiply attested that seem to have very little credibility behind them, but then there's others that aren't like that. And so it's, maybe it would be at some point for the, if, if, uh, 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 folks are interested in, and really, again, not just for, not just for kicks, but actually as an exercise, in a sense, uh, an exercise of imaginatively and philosophically thinking through phenomena like this, uh, uh, but also uh, 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 as an exercise in thinking through how to discern credible versus in credible versus non-credible explanation or testimony yeah. about, uh, you know, it, a rel as the famous quote is of relatively incredible things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, uh, any, any last thoughts? I think maybe before we go, you wanted to, for those who are just kind of interested in cooking, cooking a long dinner and listening to like, Hey, pick one down, see, see what you think. Uh, yeah. And, and like, I think as we've communicated pretty well all along, um, take it all with a grain of salt. I mean, as I tell people, worst case scenario, you'll hear a good story. You know, we all like yeah. reading good fiction. Yeah. Um, but, but what happened to me may happen to you is that you may be listening to the fiction and be like this, uh, I'm not sure this is fiction. <laughs> um, so some of the, some of the better podcasts, in my opinion, so for like big, Bigfoot stuff, which is usually the gateway drug, for a lot of people, uh, Sasquatch Chronicles, probably the oldest one. There are maybe a thousand episodes. Um, uh, there's one I think called, I think the similarly titled UFO Chronicles. It's just, I, what I like about UFO Chronicles is there's very minimal host engagement. Some of these shows, the host just talks way too much. You, you want to be like, let the people tell their stories. UFO Chronicles, this, this British dude just lets people tell their story about UFO encounters they had. Um, an interesting one is called Strange Familiars, which is basically anything weird that people have experienced that they want to talk about, they call in. Um, and uh, there's some pretty good accounts on there. I'll say two more. One, there's one that there aren't too many episodes on this one, but it's pretty interesting. It's pretty well done. It's called Otherworld. And all of these are on Spotify, I'm pretty sure. If not Spotify, then, then on YouTube. Um, and the last one, the, the most bonkers one, uh, if you really want to want to go down the rabbit hole, uh, Dogman Encounters. It's it's a good time. No matter what you think about it, some good stories on there. Uh, so those are recommendations for for uh, for dinner time or you know while you're cooking, turn on an episode and see what you think. Yes, in fact, uh, uh, <laughs> I think uh, uh, the particular person I, I was talking to in the area this week, I think the the sticker on his phone apparently started out as an ironic. A kind of ironic thing his wife i believe was trolling him and was trying to treat him as like a boomer male it's like ha 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 boomer males that are into bigfoot and sasquatch and started putting stickers of this stuff all over his stuff and uh i i, I don't know if she now regrets it because apparently it uh that that ironic joke did turn into well you know he goes and studies some of the phenomenon but i don't know maybe there's something to this you know <laughs> my wife does the same thing i i found a uh like a Bigfoot parking sign in my office one day after I'd had a meeting in there. I was just like, oh man, that's, I, don't, <laughs> I didn't need that. Getting trolled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you beware what you troll your husband with because you never know what he's going to wind up as. So uh, uh, 
<laughs> or how other people will take it. Like, oh, I'm so, I'm so glad you're interested in this. Let's talk about it. And it's just like, oh, this backfired. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, thanks again, Paul, for for coming on today to talk about these things. Uh, I hope we'll we'll uh, we always have Paul to talk come on to talk about the most interesting things. Um, but uh, normally Dale's here to take us out, so I, I'm not very well scripted at this. But I believe the idea is you can find us on all the podcast catchers and such and thus and such. Uh, uh, ending podcast jibber jabber that uh, I'll just call that concluded. But uh, <laughs> Paul, thanks again for coming on today. Joe, thank you. Great conversation. One, not one I've been able to have very often. And uh, hopefully we d- both don't get canceled. That's right. That's Until right. Until next time. Don't cancel us. Uh, just share this with your friends. That's what we prefer. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, good to see you. Good to yeah. Uh, uh,